All right, go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and uh, be primarily looking at verses 13 through 17. I want to go a little bit uh, before that in our scripture reading and pick up some context, not too far ahead. It'd be nice to read the whole chapter, but I don't have enough time to even say what I need to say within um, 45 minutes to begin with. So, The title of the message is Sanctification of the Spirit. Let's start reading in verse 7. I asked everyone else that was up here during this conference to tell who they were and what group they're a part of. I think most everybody knows I'm Scott Price. This is the home church that this conference is being hosted, Gospel of Grace Ministries. And um, this is the last message of the first day of the conference. Tomorrow there's two more messages, but after this message there will be a uh, panel discussion, some question and answers, so I'm really looking forward to that. So look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and start reading verse 7. Uh, reading primarily from the modern King James Version. For the mystery of lawlessness, and the King James uses the word iniquity, the mystery of iniquity is already working, and he who now restrains, it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the breath of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming." whose coming is according to the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceit of unrighteousness in those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, so that they might be saved. For this cause, God shall send strong delusion that they should believe a lie, so that all those who do not believe the truth, but delight in unrighteousness, might be condemned. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, to which he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, stand fast and hold forth the teachings which you have been taught, whether by word or by letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, who has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So the topic today is sanctification of the Spirit. We're going to be primarily concentrating on that aspect, that part of the Trinity, it's the life of the believer, what the Christian life looks like. As we look at the complete Word of God, and you just you read through it several times, you quickly see that there seems to be a theme, there seems to be a focus, there seems to be things stressed and prioritized in the Scripture by God Himself concerning what He says is the priority in the Scripture. And we conclude easily, summation of that, that the focus is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man mediator. And we know that uh, we've got a banner on the wall back there, that in all things he might have preeminence. God has set him forth in his sovereignty. God has wisely, in his sovereignty, decided and decreed and purposed to set him forth as the one that is the one to be viewed 
and seen and glorify and magnify God in, by, in, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this sanctification, this topic of sanctification, so far in some of the messages we've heard some of these men talk about different aspects, how the Father's involved, how the Son's involved, and how the Spirit's involved, even how the Word of God is involved. And we're going to continue on that thought. And uh, I want to bring out in this Trinitarian salvation these aspects of sanctification. And in all of them, I want to show the preeminence of Christ because we're all about seeing Christ. Without Christ, we will die. So first of all, we want to see the sanctification by the Father, sanctifying us in Christ by the Father, in, first of all, in love. So the love of God in Christ is where we are sanctified or set apart. In our text, let's go down to uh, verse 13 there. We are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brothers. So, first of all, it's written to the saints at the church at Thessalonica. And notice it says brothers. So these are saints. These are believers. These are the ones who have been granted faith. These are the ones Christ died for. These are the ones the Spirit indwells. But notice what it says. Beloved of the Lord. So we see first the Father's emphasis here in setting his people apart by loving them in Christ. And that's the only place that love is. The love of God is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39. So first of all, we see that first aspect, love. Now, continue with the text there. Look at the latter part of that verse there. Because God has, what? From the beginning, chosen you to salvation. So now we see a further view of God sanctifying his people in Christ as they were chosen in him, right? So the electing or choosing of God's people is in Christ, and they are set apart that way. They are consecrated, set apart, or made holy in that sense, way back then in the mind of God, in the love of, love of God in Christ, and the election of God in Christ. So again, already preeminence, preeminence. Christ, in each one of these steps, is put forth in preeminence. Even though the Father is doing this work, Christ is preeminent in love. God, the Father, could not love his people unless it was in, by, and through, conditioned upon, for his sake, the Lord Jesus Christ. The same with election. Christ has preeminence in election. Even though the Father's doing it, Christ is set forth because they are chosen in him, conditioned on him. For his sake, because of him. In our text here, it doesn't flow through word for word so that I can use the next aspect of sanctification. It's been covered already by everybody. The death of Christ. The blood of Christ. He accomplished redemption at the cross. By his blood, he set us apart. Uh, both of these verses were already quoted. I'll quote them real quick again. Hebrews 10.10 we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Once and for all time. Verse 14, by one offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. So the middle one, speaking of Christ, performing the gospel, it's easy that he has preeminence. He's the one doing it, right? This is, what, this is why the world was created right here for this 
magnification and this aspect here of the blood of Christ to be shed to set his people apart once and for all time. If you think about the doctrines of grace, the tulip, and as you come down to the middle part, the U, the L, and the I, Uly, the U and the I point to the L. Unconditional election, irresistible grace point to the atonement. The atonement is the peak of all history and is a magnification of all glory. There has never been nor ever will be any other glory more magnified than that time on the cross when Christ put away sin. That's the peak of all the glory of God. That's the, uh, the Shekinah glory of God manifest. And as a result, we know he, was, he died, he was resurrected, he ascended, and he was exalted. And it says in the latter part of uh, Ephesians 1 that nobody can ever be higher than him in, in any world to come. So it was a big deal. So then we come to the next facet, which is, is directly in our text. It is the Spirit of God has purposed to sanctify us in testifying of Christ. We are set apart then through, as the text says, through sanctification of the Spirit we are set apart. And this is, this is going to be the main part of the topic today, this aspect of in time, in our conscience awareness, that we are sanctified by the Spirit and we know it. And then we, we work from that platform. We're going to talk about here in a second what that looks like. Um, fifthly, uh, the gospel itself, that message, that is, it is a message that is a set-apart means, a truth, and James is going to be talking uh, about that tomorrow, I believe in John 17. It is a truth that God uses to waken us up and to show us so that we may see through the power of the Spirit, see through the means of that truth, what is the focus of the gospel. And it goes back to the last thing we just talked about, Christ and Him crucified. In other words, as the text flows through, in the belief of the truth. Sanctification in the belief of the truth. So you see how those things just flow through harmoniously and it shows all the aspects of the Trinity and uh, no contradictions. It's all just beautifully fits together. The pieces of the puzzle are consistent. So we want to start looking at what, what, what does it look like to be sanctified by the Spirit? What happens? What takes place? Several things. We're not going to be able to cover them all. We're just going to scrape the surface. We want to give a couple definitions of sanctification. It's already been talked about, but here it's talking about purification or a state of a state of purity and holiness. And it comes from a word that means to make holy or to consecrate. So you can see that just from the definition and from the context of this verse, it talks about sanctification of the spirit that has nothing to do with us. It doesn't say anything about we're doing anything. This is a work of God done. Uh, to us. So we are just recipients of it. Just like overall grace, we're just recipients of grace. And not only that, we want to see the ground upon which the Spirit does this work. The Spirit just doesn't operate by Himself and just say in, in reference to the Trinity. We know the Trinity is in harmony. The Trinity covenanted 
before the t uh, foundation of the world, and the salvation unfolds consistently, and God's faithful to his own character. He doesn't do things out of order, and the Trinity is not pitted up against each other. They work in harmony. Their wills, the will of God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are united. So there is a ground upon which the Spirit is enabled to do this work. And the ground is what we spoke of earlier. It's the atonement, the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are two verses, Romans 8.10. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ established righteousness or brought in an everlasting righteousness by a perfect life and the obedient death, satisfying law and justice to merit what was not there before that can be given to, by imputation, his people, a righteousness, thereby flowing from the fruit of that would be the work of the Spirit in the believer because of, on the foundation of the work of Christ for the believer. So the foundation upon where the Spirit works is, first of all, that, that gathered up merit of all that Christ did in that effort of redeeming his people. And that is the ground and basis of the platform from which the Spirit is enabled to uh, dispense all these gifts, these spiritual blessings that the Scripture speaks about. Um, you can turn to this one if you would like. We're going to be hold your place there if you have a paper Bible in uh, Thessalonians. But First Peter, or I'm sorry, Second Peter, one one. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained like precious faith with us. Notice this. How did that happen? Through the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's saying the same thing, that the Spirit is life because of righteousness. We have what we have because the Lord Jesus Christ established righteousness. It's imputed to our account. And that is the foundation of everything else that we get. And those, mainly those two blessings, besides our justification, is directly in our text. It's sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. So sanctification of the Spirit, the Spirit doing His work in His people, is that initial regeneration that takes place. We know that we come into the world... First of all, legally condemned with Adam's sin imputed to our account. We have that sin nature so that we are spiritually dead. We can't hear. We can't see. We're spiritually deaf, dumb, and blind. There is none good, none righteous, none seeks after God, none understands. We're, we're totally depraved. So we need, as Christ was uh, speaking to Nicodemus there in uh, John 3, we need this life, this awakening, so that we can even see. So we're not going to be able to believe until we can see. So we're given life, we're given eyes of faith. It's the, uh, it's the effectual call, the power of God, through the means of the gospel. And notice something that is sort of a contrast between what we were, not only what we were, but the other people in our text where they stay. I mean, this is a crazy comparison here. This is, a lot of preachers don't even talk about some of the language used here. Look at verse 10. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 10. And with all deceit 
of unrighteousness in those who perish. Now, stop there a second. The deceit of unrighteousness. I just want to camp here and talk about self-righteousness. I did a series a few years ago, six-part series on self-righteousness. Now, that would be about six hours right here on this sentence if I was to stop and expound on it. I want to try to collapse it down to some basic ideas. The deceit of unrighteousness. Now, let's go back to the natural man before they're born again. Think of your own selves and your own experience before you believe the gospel. Natural man operating under his own conscience, the power of his own conscience. Now, the conscience detects outward immorality and is sensitive to it. Basic things like lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, things like this. The conscience reacts in the natural man that is not born again. It reacts in trying to find something to reconcile himself to God because he feels the guilt on the conscience. And the first thing he does, he starts scrambling to find something to get that guilt off. Uh, He could uh, maybe excuse himself, accuse others, or he can get busy doing something to do enough good to outweigh the bad. I mean, this is the way the natural man thinks. And it's a burden that he can never get rid of. He can never be satisfied with it. So the conscience by itself, which in Romans 2 it talks concerning the law written on the heart, that natural conscience that makes us feel guilty. Even without the tablets of stone, that conscience is there. And that conscience can detect everything outwardly immoral, but it cannot detect the thing that actually Jason was talking about. It's that idea of self-righteousness. The conscience can't detect that. The conscience produces that. So there's the trap of Satan right there. And um, it talks about that text, Jason. Try to refresh my memory here. That this person, is uh, he's working against himself in that situation before he has that truth. And I can't remember how the wording was there. He was, in a, he was trapped, I think the word, from the snare of the devil. That's the snare of the devil, is self-righteousness. He's trapped. So it, that is the sin of deceitfulness. That's the sin that fools us, is self-righteousness. We don't realize we're doing it. It's the worst thing we can do, but it's, we think it's the best thing we can do. With all the seed of unrighteousness in those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so that they might be saved. And for this cause, God sends them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now, think about, couple this idea with it. Let's think about that guy in Romans 7 that, that went to, all the way to judgment deceived. And he was there at judgment day. And he was ready to plea his ground of salvation. But Lord, Lord, didn't I? And he started naming them. Started naming the supposed good things. Right here, deceit of unrighteousness. He fooled himself. He, he was deceived all the way up into the judgment, and his plea was things that he was doing, even if he thought God was doing them in him or through them, he made that the ground of salvation rather than the blood of Christ alone. That's strong delusion, right? That he should believe a lie. 
the truth did not set this person free. They believed a lie. It goes on so that all those who do not believe the truth, notice they didn't believe it. The other verse says they didn't love it. They didn't receive the love of it. But delight in unrighteousness. There again, the idea of self-righteousness. All forms of people, whether they're religious or irreligious, they all have a form of self-righteousness. What the Pharisees would look at, whether it be the homos and the prostitutes, both sides have a self-righteousness. The prostitutes would maybe look at another prostitute and say, well, she's been a prostitute for 20 years. I've only been one for six weeks, and I know I'm going to get out of this situation pretty soon, but she's been in it longer than me. Everybody has a form of it. But the religious people are steeped in deception. The Pharisees, I mean, that's who Christ had the most problem, the most bumping heads with, was the Pharisees. And he had some choice words. Matthew 23 was probably the strongest in the whole of Scripture. So I just want to point that out. We, that's where we came from right there, in our lost days, in our self-righteous days, when we were deceived in um, holding to a different righteousness besides Christ alone. So that is plenty to be separated and purified from that idea right there, those verses of, of what we were, where we came from. And again, this change from death unto life, from darkness into light, is not a change in our flesh or in our, in our substance. It's not like me, Scott Price, is righteous in my flesh or my substance. It is what the merit of what Christ has done for me is attributed to me, charged to my account. And the Spirit of God on that platform operates in me to see that and to count on that, not to look into myself. Philippians chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but there were three evidences of the salvation of the believer it's rejoicing Christ Jesus. One of them is to have no confidence in the flesh. I can't remember the third one. I did that the other day too. And I uh, got the congregation. It was a sword drill, you know, and, and it took five minutes. So if somebody can tell me that third one. Rejoicing Christ Jesus, no confidence in the flesh. 3-3, three, three, I think it is. So there is, yeah, worship Christ in the Spirit. Yeah, that's it. But one of the big ones there is no confidence in the flesh. You continue to see God's people in the Scripture being crushed and being humbled, and they submit to the righteousness of Christ, and they get rid of their own by grace. This repentance that Jason just preached about. And Philippians 3 is a good parallel chapter to where he was preaching there in its clarity where Paul flushed his own righteousness which was of the law. So it's not, it's not in our own flesh, our own substance. There's nothing that changes in our flesh. But we have a new identity. We are no longer identified in the flesh as who we are in the flesh. 
We have a new identity in Christ. So we are set apart actually by the Spirit in actuality. At this time of effectual calling, when the Spirit comes, it says in Psalm 110.4, I believe it is, Thy people shall be willing the day of thy power. So God has, through his providence, he has appointed a day that that gospel will come with the Spirit in power, and life, spiritual life will be imparted, and they will be awakened, and we will have the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ revealed to us. And what does that say? Remember in um, Ephesians chapter 1, I think it's about verse 18, somewhere between 16, 18, 19 there, that the same power that it took to raise Christ from the dead is the same power that he works in us to cause us to believe. Now, do you think that you're going to know about that? Do you think you're going to go through the day and uh, be converted the next day, say, I wonder if I was converted yesterday? I mean, this is kind of like a knock-you-off-the-horse kind of a thing. You're going to know. I'm not talking about stars and you know any kind of ecstatic experience, but I'm talking about a revelation in your mind by the power of Spirit through the means of the gospel. You stopped counting on certain things. You saw a whole new picture. The light was turned on, so to speak. You're not anymore. You've taken all the eggs out of your own goofy invested basket and you've invested them in Christ alone. And he is your only hope. You're not double-minded anymore. The simplicity or the singleness is in Christ. The singleness of your eye and your investment of everything you hope for is right there in Christ. And the Spirit, as He operates right there when He wakes you up, the Spirit has one task. After He takes that, that law, when you see in the Gospel that Christ satisfied the law, and you see, well, okay, I can't do that, and that tutor is used there in the hands of the Spirit. And then there's a pointing. There's no more returning to the tutor. The tutor is retired. The schoolmaster is retired. And there's a pointing to Christ, the end of the law for righteousness. And you flee to Christ irresistibly. That's all you can see. That's your hope and your answer. You go there. You don't want to go back to the fear and bondage and doubt anymore. So you go to the one that fulfilled the law, satisfied the law, magnified the law. And he is the one in that, through faith, in that life that you see as he's glorified in your heart. And that's where you go. You flee to him. And he is, he is the rule of your life by grace through faith. So in other words... I said all that to say the Spirit's job is to testify of Christ. I think it's already been said. It said he will not speak of his own. He's to testify of Christ. And this is inseparable from this phrase in verse 13, belief of the truth. Verse 14, it goes on to say, to which he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here it is clearly put in here that the gospel is definitely a means that is used. It's not just some mysterious thing where, you know, I remember when I um, was messing around in seminary taking some classes and this guy was 
telling his experience of his conversion. He said he didn't hear anything about God or the gospel or the Bible. He just remembers after work, going out, taking out the garbage, and he looked up in the sky and he saw something weird in the sky. And that was his conversion experience. It was a mystical thing. He felt, felt weird. And then after that, he just started thinking about God. Well, at the time I was talking to him in seminary, he was saying some whacked out stuff anyway, theologically, and I didn't even at the time think he was converted in the first place. And it makes sense because he was counting on that ecstatic experience that had nothing to do with the person and work of Christ. The Spirit's job is to testify of Christ. And when you talk about the gospel, you talk about Christ. You see Christ. So this is a, a, a direct effect on our minds. The scripture talks about heart. It's talking about the mind. We are said to have the mind of Christ. We've been given the mind of Christ. You know, before this, we, we're, just, we're just blind. We have no idea. There's none that understandeth. My ways are not your ways, says the Lord. But you know what? When we get the mind of Christ, some of those mysteries are cleared away. It's a, it's a revelation through the means of the gospel by the power of the Spirit. And we start to see, oh, I see now. It makes sense. And in our faith, we go to Him. We've been given an understanding that we may know Him, 1 John 5.20. So God works on our heart. What is the promise of the new covenant? That He would take out the stony heart. He's going to give us a brand new heart. So there are some things that we know, and God gets the credit for that. Uh, we don't study ourselves in heaven. God dumps this revelation on us by the power of the Spirit through the means of the gospel. And as James is going to talk about John 17, 17 tomorrow, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Do you see how those two things are inseparable? People today want to divorce those things. They want to divorce everything. They want to divorce the, the atonement from the gospel. They want to divorce the person from the work. They want to do, uh, divorce sanctification from the truth. The word from sanctification. The truth from the word. Just on and on and on. Everybody wants to separate everything. God puts it all together. All of it's all together. It's all part of one big means that is consistent. I mean, think about the word truth and consistent. Truth means something sticks together. When something doesn't stick together, it's not consistent. These things are basic. So God keeps all this together. Now, I want to emphasize one thing here toward the end as we're going to wind it down. This thing about sanctification of the Spirit in time, you have a conscious awareness that you're set apart. You read about it in the Scripture. You see that it's still all by grace, as all of salvation is by grace. And then you see that we have been set apart and we are in this state of being set apart. But yet the Spirit wakes us up and regenerates us, and we, are, we experience this awakening and the setting apart in our minds. We're aware of who God is. We have an understanding. So we experience what He does. Our experience doesn't make Him do the work. He does the work, and it makes us experience what we know concerning the truth, right? Right?
I, I just kind of reiterated that. I don't want to emphasize experience. But we're not um, hyper-Calvinists or fatalists where we just go through life. Some of these guys believe that God's people are elect and God just, just regenerates. They don't even know it. They go through the rest of their life, don't even believe the gospel, and they find out that they were saved after they get to heaven. We, the scripture doesn't teach that. I mean, such power that's used to work in the heart alivens us and wakens us up to we know. We know something took place, right? We know the truth. The truth shall set us free. And if the truth hadn't set us free, we're not set free. So we know the truth. So that activity, this initial regeneration, the sanctification, this alivening, passing from death unto life, from darkness to light, this sanctification by the Spirit through the belief of the truth is once and for all. It takes place right there and it's done. It's complete. Now, that's not to say the Spirit doesn't continue to work in you because the Scripture says he that began a good work will continue it until the day of Christ. We know that. We know that the Scripture says that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. That's not sanctification. That's what sanctified people do. Those that are already sanctified do that. We know that the Scripture talks about mortifying the deeds of the flesh. We don't do that to be sanctified. That's what sanctified people do. And you could name a host of other things that the Scripture exhorts us to do we could say the same thing. We don't do those things to be sanctified. That's what sanctified people do. Right? Look at all the New Testament letters at the beginning where it talks about saints. Uh, we've quoted from Corinthians, the crazy place. You know, all kind of stuff was going on. They were called saints. The second letter, Paul didn't say, you know what, you're getting a little bit better. You know, so we're going we're gonna to capitalize the word saints. And next time we're going to, next time we're going to underline it. Then after that we're going to bold it. And after that we're going to highlight it. That's goofy. So here's the point. Listen to this wording. If you could just think it in this way. Because what I'm bringing all this up to combat this idea of progressive sanctification as if there were levels of holiness. This is the point. Listen. We remain sanctified. We're sanctified once and for all time, and we remain sanctified. This is simple. We stay sanctified. We don't ever become unsanctified, in other words. So there's no progressing levels in sanctification, whether it be up or down, so we are, we are set apart by the Spirit and belief of the truth once and for all time. It's a complete work by the Spirit. It's a, an effectual, powerful work by the Spirit. He completes his task. There's Tudor, can't keep the law. There's Christ, he satisfied the law. Flee to Christ. I te just testified of Christ. There he goes to Christ. Faith is put in Christ. Look, it just happened. The same power that took to raise Christ from the dead, 
effectuated this action of making the sinner, making the sinner flee to Christ, his only hope. So again, anything we do, and it's God that works in us anyway, that we do, is done by an already sanctified believer. Now, having said that, let me make this statement. As we study in the Scriptures, just like we've been doing today or in our regular course of teaching in our individual churches, and there is instruction given um, by the Word of God in the church, and we would hope that the Spirit of God is in our midst, working on the hearts of the people as we worship and instruct. And um, as we instruct people, those that teach and preach, we are not speaking to the flesh. I'm not speaking to the old man when I talk to you. Not doing it. Because I know, like Paul said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. So I'm not talking to your flesh when I say, do this or do this from the text. I'm talking to the new man, the new creature, the new creation. The one that has a new identity. The one who has died to self. The one who has been given repentance from their own righteousness. The one who is a good tree that can only produce good fruit. I think this is a big thing that people get confused on when they, when they hear exhortations and different things about the practical application in our lives of things God tells us to do. They respond with, well, you can't do that in the flesh. I'm not talking to the flesh. Uh, I thought the gospel took care of that. The gospel repentance thing took care of that. Everything we talked about today took care of that. So we're not talking about the flesh. The flesh can't do anything. The flesh will take you in the opposite direction. We have no confidence in the flesh. That's, uh, that, we just said that's evidence of our salvation, that we don't have confidence in the flesh. So why would I ask you to do something in the flesh? It would be me asking you to sin. That would fall in back into the category of where we came out of, the deceitfulness of unrighteousness. We're talking to the new man. The new man is receiving the instruction. The new creature with the mind of Christ is hearing the voice of Christ. The new man with the spirit indwelling. And the evidence of, a, of who these people are, the new creature, the new man, God's sheep, the evidence, the chief evidence, is faith. Faith in Christ and His gospel. And it fits our text, belief in the truth. The scripture says that the just shall live by faith. So the question is brought up. Is the law the rule of life? How does that match with the just shall live by faith? Show me how that matches. Doesn't match. Doesn't match. We respect the law. We honor the law. It was just spoken of. Who, who, who are we talking about now out of all these ministries that talk about the law really has respect and reverence for the law of God in reference to the standard that everybody has talked about here today? Verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself 
and God, even our Father, who has loved us and given us, notice this, an everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. I mean, that, that can never fail because that right there has nothing to do with us. That is unchanging. We go all over the place. We're like a roller coaster. We've got what we think are good days and bad days. And I said what we think. We probably ought to be careful on what we think our good days are. That's probably where our worst days are. So, an everlasting consolation and good hope. A good, what is the word, Charlene, help me out, on hope. Confident expectation, right? Confidence is not in us. The confidence is in Christ. When I say that the Scripture says, and we just read it, evidence of salvation is no confidence in the flesh, confident expectation of what Christ accomplished. It's not just a good hope. We've been convinced that it is our only hope. The words only and alone, these words are pretty valuable to me because they couch things and make distinctions in such a way there's no wiggle room for me to take something upon myself that I may in the last day have something small to, at, in the deceitfulness of unrighteousness, say, but haven't I, didn't I do this, that, and the other? I know I didn't keep the law perfectly, but I mean, I gave it my best shot. You've got to give me something for sincerity. My desires. I mean, that's what all the Lordship people talk about. Their desires. They give you new desires. Your desires are not your propitiation. There's only one perfect propitiation that met the standard, and it's not your desires. We know that man at his best, that includes his desires, is altogether vanity. Paul said he wanted to be found in Christ, not having his own righteousness which is of the law. And you know, that's kind of weird how you mentioned in your message about who is it that respects and honors the law. You talked about the standard and he talked about the gospel. And these things all go together going in this direction. And you see that man, in his religion, even if he dresses it in Calvinistic reform, sovereign grace clothes. They start out talking real big and bad and bold about the law and try to make you feel like an outsider and try to call you an antinomian and of course they expect you to shrink down and say oh don't call me that and then they expect you to compromise somehow but all we got to do is say look do you hear what the law says the law says cursed is everyone that continueth not in the whole the whole thing all the time and then they start chiseling it down you know, they start saying, "Well, we're not we're not talking about the Decalogue," and then they start lowering the laws down, and they get down to the moral law, and it's just something besides the moral law. Now that it's, well, you mean your your tenor of life, or you're trying. The sin's not willful. You don't practice it. You don't do it as a habit. And then there's desires, and then there's sincerity. They just keep bringing the standard down. They bring God down in His holiness and His justice and they bring man up 
may end up doing the same thing what, what you used to do in Pentecostalism. And other uh, denominations that believe that you can lose your salvation. I've seen it, and see, uh, you all have seen it too, time and time again. So, the last part of that line there, good hope through grace. What we see here is grace is sufficient. Good hope through grace. Verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. There's some things that God produces in us by the power of the Spirit after we see the truth, after we've been granted repentance, he straightens out our motive. We don't anymore attempt to obey him out of fear of punishment or promise of a reward. We do what we do here cheerfully. We do what we do here by faith, in love, not for righteousness. Remember, it's not of the flesh. And we know that what we do with those things in mind in a gospel context, we know that they are only accepted. Why? Because we are accepted in Him. That's the only reason. Yeah, it's important to have a good motive. A good motive is not the ground of acceptance of your works. The ground of acceptance of your works is being accepted in Christ. And that will make you have a good motive, not the other way around. Good trees only produce good fruit. And shorthand for that is was what I wear out. And I, I didn't come up with it. I just I just have a habit of saying a couching it this way that we are only and always accepted in the beloved. Only and always. Whether we do good or bad, we're only and always accepted in the Beloved. That makes me want to do good when I hear that. Somebody gives me a great gift like, you know, the spiritual lottery. Only accepted in the Beloved. Do you think that makes, makes me say, you know, I didn't even care. <laughs> Screw Christ. No, that makes me, I'm going to serve Him. I want to love Him. Right? I want to respect him and want to honor him. Last verse I want to quote is everybody knows that Ephesians 2.10 I'll end with this. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. This is something that is decreed by God that is just as sure as taking place as anything else God has decreed. This means it's not the old Arminian idea where God looks down through the future and sees, oh, I see he's going to do some good works and ordains them that way. God spearheads this operation. He's the first cause of all things. He doesn't look and learn. He makes it happen. That's why he knows, because he decreed it. That means that just like election was before the foundation of the world and we didn't have anything to do with it, this here is also in place that way. That threefold aspect of sanctification comes down right here where the rubber meets the road 
and God works in us both the will and do of his good pleasure monergistically by free and sovereign grace. We can't take any credit for anything that we do. And I believe that is walking in the Spirit and living by faith. All right, let's take a break, and then we're going to have this question and answer thing. I think it's just a 10-minute break. We're going to go into that, right? Yeah.